Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as Pastor Randy takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 1 of Revelation, discussing the importance of abiding in the right things and having our focus on the one that really matters. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Peace comes from God's grace. Our, our, our stuff just leaves us wanting. You see, it's, it's only in resting what Jesus did and, and what he's doing and what he does for us that brings that, that grace to us, that peace. Two important questions to you guys this morning, just for you to meditate on. Have you received his grace that brings his peace to your life? Have you received his grace that brings his peace to your life? And if you have, this is an important question too, if you have, are you remaining at peace by continuing to rest in his grace? You see, you just don't come to find his peace by resting in him in in your salvation, but it's to be resting in him the rest of your life, to be trusting in the work that he's done for you, and to realize that, you know what? Yeah, Lord, I want to be used powerfully of you, but I'm running back to you for my peace because I know that I stand by your grace alone. Amen? Now, this is also a perfect place salutation because there are going to be some very unsettling and and, and really some terrifying things uh, presented in this revelation. And John wants to calm theirs, and he wants to calm our fears right at the start. And as we read about a lot of these awful things that will be taking place in the world, coming upon the world, we can have peace if we're abiding in the grace of Christ. There's no need to fear if you're in Christ. There's no need to fear whatsoever. We can have perfect peace even in the face of this or or any terrible storm that might blow into our lives as we live on this earth. We can still have peace in the midst of it. If you're in Christ, there's no need to fear because you were ultimately kept and you are being ultimately kept and you will be ultimately kept by his grace alone. Amen. And then he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So next he brings up this idea from him who is and who was and who is to come. And unlike the other New Testament letters where the writers open with a greeting from, the, you know, from themselves, here John opens with a greeting from God himself. He opens with a greeting from God himself. This is just more evidence that, that John is nothing more than the scribe of this letter. He is the secretary writing it down, the, the, the person like in the courts, you know, just writing it down as he goes. He is not the author of this letter. And by the way, please note that 12 times in this book, John is commanded to write. Write this down, you know, write this down. He's simply a scribe for God's direct communication to all of us in this letter. Now, John tries to find adequate language in the Greek to present God to us, but how do you do that? I mean, that's kind of like, how do you describe what's in store for us? How do you even adequately describe God? You know, I think it was Ken Graves who said he heard somebody one time say, God is really awesome. And he looked at me and he said, God is, is greater than awesome. Awesome doesn't describe it. That's, that falls short, but it's the best we can do. And John is looking for words to describe God as he's making this presentation. And he describes and he presents him in three ways. The God who is, 
In other words, the God of the present, that God is the God of the present, the God who is. He's, he exists. He's here. He didn't die. He isn't, you know, fallen off the end of the universe. He's, he exists. He's present, ever present with us. He's the God who was. He is the God of past history. It's interesting that he begins with who is rather than who was, because he started who was. You might start to think, well, he once existed, but he doesn't anymore. But he wants you to begin with understanding he does exist, but he also was the God who was. He was the God of past history. He's always been there. He was there before you were born. He was there before man was ever created. He exists. Oh, great a God. Well, we'll go to that another day, okay? But he's always been there. And then third, he says, he's the God who is to come. In other words, he's the God who will be God of the future. He's the God of the future, even into eternity. The God who is coming, who will always be God and who will always be there. Now, do you see the eternal nature of God that John is trying to present to us in this? Because he's given it to us. He's a God who has always been there, always will be here. And yet he's a God who is out there. And we'll be there in the future as we get there. He's the God who spans eternity from the eternal past through the present to the eternal future. This is the God that you and I have given our lives to. It's who he is. And he's the God who rules over the past, present, and the future, even now in our lives. Now, I just, gotta, I just want you to think this morning as well. Do you see God in this way in your life? Do you understand that? Or do you pick up your Bible? And I'm not accusing you of that, but I think it's our tendency as human beings again. We sometimes read these, these, these letters or we read the Old Testament historical books and we read about God doing these things and we begin to relate to God only in a historical sense, kind of like we would if we were reading about George Washington or, or, or Caesar, you know, uh, Augustus Caesar or some great person of the past. And we begin to relate in a historical sense and we forget along the way that God is the same today. He hasn't changed. He hasn't gone away. And we need to relate to him in that way. There is, is nothing in the past that he has not been a part of, even in your life. There's nothing in the past that he was not a part of. From the very moment you were born, even before you were born, he knew your name. He knew you before you were born. He knew the choice you'd make, and yet he gave you the free will to make the choice. I know people argue, well, that's not free will. Sure it is. Sure it is. He's not trying to change. He doesn't intervene in a way that changes and takes that free will from you from the choice. And yet he knows because he knows the future. He sees it all. But yet he was a part of your life from the very beginning. And, and yeah, he was seeking to woo you to himself all the way along. I relate to that. You know, I look back 18 years old when I came to Christ. But when I came to Christ, I suddenly looked back and I saw all the earmarks of God along the way where he was presenting himself to me, where he would come through some someone else and bring a message to me, bring a circumstance to me that would get me thinking about him being existent. He was there before you were born. He knew you before you were even conceived. And he's been working in your life all the way along. And then there's nothing in your life that he's not a part of now. He's, there's nothing that he's not a part of now. He's here in the present. He's with you, even though on some days you may not see him, you may not feel him. Boy, boy, just be careful with the, well, I don't feel God's presence. Be careful with feelings because feelings are very deceiving. They're very, very deceiving. You know, 
But even though you might not realize that he's there, he's still there. He's still working. He's still shaping. He's still intervening. He's still leading you. Like Jacob. I think of Jacob. You know, Jacob, when he didn't at first sense God's presence while, while fleeing from Esau, his brother, he eventually came to realize, it tells us in Genesis 28, verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Huh. Have you ever had that in your life even now? We just felt like he left you alone to just dangle out there in the wind. And then, however it began to work over time, you look back and said, you know what? The Lord was there, and I did not know it. He's here, and I did not realize it. There's nothing in your life that he will not be a part of now, and there's nothing in your life that he will not be a part of in the future. If you're in Christ, he's a part of your eternal destiny. He'll be there to greet you and to receive you into your future eternal home, and he's made you a promise of that future eternal relationship, just as John records in John 14, verses 1 through 3. John 14, 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Hannity did not say that. Okay, my wife heard that the other night. She says, why does he do that? You know, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is the God that, that through John's pen is greeting us now, the unchanging eternal God of past, present, and future. And, and what hope and comfort we can have in all this. Amen? Well, let's look on. What's he say next? He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Here we come to one of the sevens and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits. What are the seven spirits? I thought there was only a spirit, the Holy Spirit. What are the seven spirits? Well, this is not a reference to some seven mysterious separate spirits, but it's simply a reference to one spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Do you remember I told you that this book interprets itself or scripture will interpret this book for us? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Go to verse 2. Here he's talking, Isaiah is making a prophetic reference to Messiah, to the restoration of Messiah's kingdom, and he begins to talk about the Spirit of the Lord, and listen what he says. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Do you know how many descriptors he gave of the Holy Spirit there? Seven. He actually gives seven. Number one, he is the spirit of the Lord. That's the first one, right? He is the representative of the Lord to us. We get to know God through his spirit. He's dwelling in us. He's fellowshipping with us today. And in that, we come to know the mercy. We come to know the grace. We come to get that full understanding of God himself. Secondly, number two, he is the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of wisdom. You know, we know that because we studied the book of Proverbs, right? You want to be wise? comes from the Spirit of God working. I mean, that's how Solomon got his wisdom. Third, he's the Spirit of understanding. He's the Spirit of understanding. Understanding what? Understanding the things of God. Understanding the things of the way he works. The understanding we have. Different than wisdom. Understanding is the information that we gain, but wisdom is the knowing how to use that, how to apply that, right? 
Fourth, he's the spirit of counsel. Boy, do I know that one to be true. Because when I sit down and I counsel people with all of the dilemmas that they face in life, I feel very inadequate. I told you, I flushed my, my master's degree in, in humanistic psychology a long time ago because I've just found, yeah, it gives a band-aid, but it never really gets to the root of the problem. But when I sit and I talk to people, I'm sitting there quietly saying, Lord, you've got to give, give the counsel here. Help me to understand. I look at people I counsel and I say, hey, we're taking this to the Lord. You're not coming to me. We're going to go to the Lord together because he's the one who gives us counsel. He gives us counsel here, and I hope you seek it here. But he also is working through his spirit to take what's here and to give us the application of it to heart through his wisdom, through the understanding we get from But then he counsels us with it. Fifth, he's the spirit of might. He's the spirit of might. You know, one of the interesting things I study on spiritual warfare for this presentation I'm going to be giving at the retreat is that, of course, we're told to be strong in the Lord and his strength. You know, uh, the world fights by its own strengths. It builds up its own muscles. But we as spiritual warriors, our muscles are built up in the strength that God gives. And that comes from his spirit. So we look to the Holy Spirit for the might that he gives us. Six, he's the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord. He gives us not just the awareness of the Lord in our lives, but he gives us the knowledge of the Lord himself, who he is. I would argue it's how he thinks, how he even thinks, how he relates to things. Don't you find as a Christian today that you relate to things very differently than you did before you came to Christ? You look at the world through a different set of glasses. Now, some Christians don't, and that's just kind of walking in the flesh when you're doing that. But when you step back and you suddenly look at things and you say, boy, I see very clearly what's going on there. That is not of the Lord. And why do you say that? Because you have knowledge of the Lord. You know how he works. You know how he thinks. You know how he goes. We're told in Scripture that we have what? The mind of Christ. We're given the mind of Christ. We have the knowledge of the Lord. And then finally, number seven, he is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He's the spirit of the fear of the Lord, that awe, that reverence that we have of him. He presents the Lord to us in a way where he isn't just our buddy. You know, I told you, I can't get into that. But I don't get into that just because it's me who says I can't, because there are a lot of Christians who do. They see God as they're just their co-pilot, you know. But, but I, I, the more I have walked in the spirit, the more I have become aware of the awesomeness, a word I told you we can't really use because it doesn't adequately describe, but I become very aware of the awesomeness of God. And, and realize that even though my sin and the gulf that existed because of my sin has been bridged, that he's still God. And I'm still just, you know, this puny human being born into this world. Yes, he loves me, but I'm not taking advantage of that love in wrong ways. And why is that? Because the spirit has caused a fear in my heart, a reverence. It's not afraid, but it's a fear of reverence of him. And the spirit does that. I would argue that sometimes, and and you guys know I believe in the Spirit-filled life. I believe in being filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that even as Christians, we need that daily in our lives. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit today, but I think a lot of the wacky things that we have seen going on in Christianity, you should be able to identify that that's not of the Lord because so much of it lacks that fear of the Lord. And if the Spirit's involved, there will be a reverence of the Lord in the process. So here John applies a description of the Holy Spirit given to us by Isaiah. That's who he's referring to here in Revelation. The seven spirits are the seven spirits that are named here in the book of Isaiah. So first we're greeted by the eternal God himself, but now we're being greeted by the Spirit of God. And there's still one more greeting and one more introduction. Look on in verse 5. 
in Revelation. He says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over all, the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So finally, John greets us on behalf of Jesus Christ. He greets us on behalf of Jesus Christ, and he accompanies this greeting from Jesus with three titles being ascribed to him, three titles that testify of three things. Number one, the first title, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. And this title speaks of his sinless suffering unto death on our behalf. It's the ancient word, the ancient Greek word that he uses for witness is the word martus. Do you know what word we derive from that in our English? Martyr. Right, Martus, the faithful, in other words, the faithful martyr is what he's saying. In other words, this speaks to Jesus' utter reliability and faithfulness to his father and to his people. And even unto death, he was willing to die. He went of his own free will to do this for us. He was faithful even to the point of death. Second title he gives to him is the firstborn from the dead. I like this one because it has real ramifications for us. The firstborn from the dead. The title speaks of his victorious resurrection from the grave, how he overcame death. Even though Jesus was faithful unto death, even though he died, he also had power over death. And he rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. And here in this title is also the promise of our hope. And it's why I like it so much. It's the promise of our hope because he is the hope of the resurrection from the dead because Paul tells us that he was the first and not the last. He was the first and not the last. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. You see? The promise of resurrection isn't just what Jesus is pertaining to him. He's the first fruit. He's the first seed that went in the ground that came back out. And from that, you and I have the hope that, you know what, though we die, we live. Though we die, we live. And though the body sleep, even the body Paul's making reference to will one day rise again when he comes for us. The body will shoot out of that grave into its new form, you see. But this is more than just a statement declaring Jesus' power and hope. It's also a statement of who he is. He's preeminent among all beings. He's preeminent among all beings. When it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, it means more than Jesus was simply the first person resurrected. It also means that he is preeminent among all those who are or will be resurrected from the dead. He's preeminent above us. It's not just a glimpse of what he did or what he can do, but it's a glimpse of who he is that John is giving to us. And then finally, title number three, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now that title speaks of his imminent triumphant return. And before the story of the world is finished, Jesus will take dominion over every earthly thing and over every earthly king and kingdom. He'll rule over them. Everything and everyone's going to be brought into submission to his supreme rule. Nations as we know them today will fall to him. He will own them, you know, so we can make any country as great as we want again and nothing wrong with that. But the truth is 
that's the day when all nations will be made great because he will be in control and he will rule over them. And he's finally going to do what the Jews had been looking for their Messiah to do and why they rejected Jesus in the first place. Because they remembered David. They remembered how he came and he ruled and he was a king of kings above the kings of the earth during his reign. That although there were wars, he was victorious over them. He was a true king. He was supreme. And they expected their Messiah to come that way, but they just weren't patient enough. They missed the fact that the first conquering that Jesus wanted to do was a conquering and a victory over sin and death itself. And then from that, he would move to the physical world and deal with the things in this physical world and take his place. He came then as Messiah. He's going to come again as the Messiah who is the supreme ruler and king. And this is the Jesus to whom John sends us greetings on behalf of. And it is Jesus whom we're going to find so great a hope because it's this Jesus who John says has loved us and he's washed us from his sins. This Jesus who's preeminent, this Jesus who's always been, this Jesus who's the coming king is the one who said, you know what, I'm going to wash you from your sins so you can be with me. You can be with me. Wow. But it's not quite finished yet. Bear with me just a moment. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not only has Jesus redeemed us and washed us by his blood, giving us fellowship with God, just as we've talked about this morning, but... He honors us with a position in his kingdom as well. He's promised us position in his kingdom because John tells us he's made us kings and priests to God, his father. And this is our future with God. This is our future. We're going to be kings and priests. You know what? I don't think President Trump is all that bored being president. And so just imagine one day when you are serving the Lord in a capacity in his kingdom, there'll be no boredom in that great honor to be called by him to do this and to be appointed to that. You know, we're told by, by Paul, just as he told Timothy, he said to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So how do we endure so that we can reign with him? By remaining in Christ. How do we remaining in Christ? By doing all kinds of good things? No. By continuing to believe by faith in him by abiding in him, by resting in his grace alone. That's the requirement. That's the requirement that's given to us, to rest in our belief in what he's done for us and not in ourselves. And in light of that promise, might I encourage you with the words of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, where John says this in 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So many Christians, so many believers, maybe even some of you worry so much about whether or not you're going to make it to heaven. I hope you don't worry about that. If you've placed your faith in Christ, let alone into God's kingdom one day, you know, I don't even know, boy, I'm going to just look, if I'm saved, I'm going to make it into his kingdom. Well, you know, and, and what I find is that people who have that, that idea in their heads and that fear, they strive through all kinds of works to promote themselves to God, to prove themselves to God, to earn something from him, thinking that ultimately there must be something that they must do. If only they could see how simple it really is. If only you will see how simple it really is. 
You simply need to abide. You simply need to abide. And you know, people even misconstrue that word. They immediately equate it with a work. Abiding is not a work. Abiding is about rest. I abide in my house. You know what I do when I'm abiding in my house? I got my shoes off and I'm up on the couch and I'm just resting in the safety and the security of that house in which I dwell. That's abiding in Christ. We, well, we don't necessarily get all informal and kick our shoes off with Jesus. We can. But it's the idea that we rest in him as our sole protection, our sole confidence, our sole hope, our sole covering. We're resting in him. That's to abide, you see. And it's so simple. We just place our full belief and faith in him. If only you abide, you'll not only find eternal life, but here's the promise. You're going to find yourself in a position of honor one day as you come into his kingdom. Think about that for a minute. King Randy. I do like that. (laughs) I'm sorry. You don't want me to be that now. But in that day when all righteousness exists in my heart, you'll be the same way. You know, we'll rule and reign in righteousness. We'll serve him in righteousness. There'll be no wrong motives of those who would serve him as his priests. Right. There'll be no wrong motives in those that are serving in any capacity in the kingdom that day. But he'll bestow those positions of honor upon us. You see now. In two weeks, we're going to be looking at the revelation which Jesus gives to John, beginning with specific things that he's revealed to the specific seven churches. And we'll get into that when I get back from Michigan. But uh, I hope that this has whet your appetite. We're pretty much through the introduction. Just a little bit more will come to us in the next couple of verses before he turns to those letters. But what hope we have. But if I could give you one word this morning, I would give you this. Abide in the fellowship that Christ has given to you through your faith that you've placed in him. Rest in that. It doesn't mean don't do good works. It doesn't mean don't live as the Bible commands us to live. Look, we're told in the scriptures, if you love me, you obey my commands. You know, but, but the equation begins with that abiding relationship first, not the other way around. And when we're abiding in him, you know what it's like? It's like being in your house and you got your shoes kicked off and, and, and the God of your house, your wife or your husband, whichever may be the case, comes to you and says, I really need you to take the trash out. You know what you're going to do? Because of your righteousness, you're going to get up and you're going to put your shoes on. You're going to go and take the trash out. And guess what? You just did a good thing. You just did a good thing. You were obedient. It comes from that abiding relationship. And so many people are trying to get it the other way around. Don't let that be you. Both are important, but keep the order straight. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.